Hello and welcome to the South American Football Show on the World Football Index. In this week's edition, we'll be looking at the first legs of the quarterfinals of the Copa Libertadores and also have a glance at where a few of the South American nations currently stand in their post-Russia 2018 cycles. I'll start by introducing the team. First off, let's go over to Colombia and speak to Simon. Simon, have you found somewhere quiet and uh, somewhere where you won't be mauled by a, or molested <laughs> by an Alsatian this week? Yeah, I, I, I couldn't do it at home, but I found a sneaky back alley uh, in the Santa Fe Commercial Center, an unused warehouse. So this is, this is where I'm uh, recording to this week. Um, but I seem like, seem like I'm in a good position to talk about some fun football and what's happening with the Colombian national team. And yeah, all good. All good here in Colombia. Sun is shining as always. And also joining us as ever is Austin Miller there in, I was going to say Chicago, but I know it isn't. It's uh, North Carolina, somewhere in North Carolina, no? That's correct. That's correct. We've made it through the hurricane. Uh, a week ago at this time, I did not have lights or air conditioning, which was quite oppressive. But we're good. Made it through, everybody's all right, so that's good to see. Bold move by Simon to tell the listeners where he's at. If this podcast gets out too quickly, they may be able to track him down. So he's pretty confident in, in his uh, his ability to, to attract the fans, I guess. Yeah, I did, get, I did get spotted in a shopping center before. They go, oh, you're Simon, that football guy. I'm like, yeah, Simon, the football guy. But yeah, so he now sends me messages when Adidas Originals have special discounts and tells me when there's football shirts available. So shout out to whatever his name is I've forgotten he's, he's below me I'm famous and also joining us once again although he's been absent for a while now and that's Tom Robinson there in England do you get spotted in the street much Tom? <laughs> not yet I'm afraid um, I don't quite have uh, Simon's level of uh, fame or, or infamy um, but yeah it's good to be back it has been a little while since um, I've been on one of the Libertadores shows but um we're myself and Austin were recording some spotlight pods last night, so it doesn't feel like I've been away for too long. Well, let's crack on, and we're going to start at La Bombonera, where Boca Juniors beat Cruzeiro 2-0. Um, I think we probably agreed that this was the game of the week, um, not only for the quality of football at times, but also for the controversy that it contained and, and what followed. Um, to say Cruzeiro took this defeat badly would be an un- understatement, though, Austin. Yeah, they, they were not terribly pleased. Um, I guess we should start with the controversial incident with Boca leading by a goal to nil about 75 minutes played. Cruzeiro had a free kick that they whipped into the box. Maybe it was a corner. I don't know. A ball was whipped in the box and their big center back that day uh, just didn't outstanding guy which I, I think kind of should should factor in here just a really good guy a really great story just got called back into the brazilian national team uh in september after having been injured for quite some time dealing with some pretty traumatic leg injury went up to try to win the ball with his head boca juniors goalkeeper andrada came off his line they were both moving they were both looking at the ball and today's head crashed into the jaw of andrada Uh, We found out the day after this match that Andrada actually broke his jaw on the play. It was a very violent collision. Andrada looked to be knocked out, though he did continue to play following that. Initially, the official, uh, the Paraguayan Aquino, only gave a free kick to Boca, which I think many thought was the correct call. However, as we've now reached the quarterfinal stage of the Libertadores, 
VAR, our old friend from the World Cup, is is now in effect. So Aquino was called over to the monitor by the video assistant referee. After looking at the play, he deemed the contact worthy of a red card, sent Dede off. From there, Boca Juniors scored again through Pablo Perez. They won 2-0. Cruzado's best defender will now be suspended for the second leg. Uh, Cruzado have sent, well, they actually sent members of, of their front office to Paraguay to protest against Conmebol. Brazilian clubs have, quote-unquote, come to their defense, uh, raging against the, the so-called Conmebol conspiracy against Brazil. Um, I didn't think it was a play worthy of a red card. Uh, I thought it was a violent clash, but there was no intent in it. Both players were moving. I don't know how the day is supposed to both go for the ball and avoid the goalkeeper when the goalkeeper is moving at him. I didn't agree with the red card decision, but looking at it, I think you can see why the official chose to give a red, give a red card. Um, and, and this is a subject that, that we've covered before on this podcast. I'm also not a believer in some grand conspiracy against any one nation or for one nation. Uh, I think it was just an unfortunate incident. That said, if this was a turning point in the match, I think if Cruzado can get out 1-0, they stand a much better chance in the second leg. But having lost 2-0 now to Boca Juniors, it's going to be a big mountain for them to overturn in the return leg. Uh, but there's no doubt that they're going to have plenty of energy and it's going to be a packed stadium as, as they look to kind of play against both Boca Juniors and, in their opinion, the machine that has has uh, has done them wrong so far. So it sets up for a pretty tasty second tie, particularly if Cruzado can score early. Yeah, I think this is, as you say, we've kind of covered the VAR debate before on our podcast. But, you know, this is really one of those instances where the issue with if you look at certain incidents on VAR, then you can, from certain camera angles and from slowing them down, you can make an innocent challenge, which I think that was from from Dedek, as you say, to go just to go for the ball, suddenly look, you know, like a, a violent one. Um, now, for me, it was completely accidental, um, and it, yeah, if, if if you start giving red cards for that, where then, you know, I'm not really sure where we're going to end up. There was another one later in the week, which we, which we come on to in the Colo Colo uh, Palmeiras game as well which again you know I just found bizarre when it was given as a red card but this is supposedly why we've got VAR in place to eliminate clear and obvious errors now if the referee believes that that is violent contact conduct then you know he, he does have to send him off but I don't know what Tom and Simon think but for me it was completely accidental yeah for me it's um, a combination of two things I think one, there's like a growing focus on dangerous play. You know, before 10 years ago, there had to be intent. There had to be, you know, an action that was breaking a specific rule. The player had to be going in there to try and hurt the player or doing something overly reckless. Now, with the focus on dangerous play, I think it leaves a lot of things open to interpretation. You can look at the result of the action and draw a conclusion as opposed to looking at, did the player go in to hurt the, the opponent? Did the player body position was his foot raised were there things that he was doing intentionally to hurt the player or carelessly with the potential high potential of, a, of an injury you know, so I think sometimes when you look at the outcome of this incident uh, it was a horrible collision if you and if you slow it down as well and you throw in VAR to the mix and you see a player going head first straight at the goalkeeper well it's dangerous but 
it's what happens every game. If he if he if he's moves to the an inch to the right, it's not dangerous. It's a you know a fair attempt at the ball. So for me, it was never ever a red card. But I can see how a combination of a focus on preventing anything that's potentially dangerous, which is increasingly coming into the to the way the game is is played and and referee and a still photo of a player's head going into another player's head. Those combined can create something which I don't think is reflective of of the intent. I don't think really protects any players because these things are going to happen. And I think doesn't referee the game in a way that players would like to see the game refereed. You want to protect the players. You want to make sure that dangerous things are going to happen. And, and it's not always someone's fault. Uh, and in this instance, I, yeah, I can't see any fault from either player at all. So it's very, very unfortunate. I think unfortunate is the biggest thing. I don't think it's conspiracy. I think it's ridiculous. Um, the, the richest, most powerful nation on the continent isn't going to be the victim of an organization that, if anything, you could say is overly motivated by money. Um, maybe Bolivia um, would also have a few complaints, as with every country, because referees aren't that. Decisions can be quite slow. So I, I can understand there's lots of frustration with these incidents uh, and the way they've been handled. But, you know, there's not a conspiracy. And I do think VAR plus uh, potentially being, you know, open can create unfair results. Yeah, I think um, what you guys have said about not only the the fact that the replay makes it look, look a lot worse and also the result of the action conditioning the referee's uh, opinion, I think it's just one of those things where we're clearly not going to see any consistency with this, this kind of thing because it's such a, a freak and accidental collision that every time a player puts his head in a potentially dangerous area we're not going to see red cards dished out because I, th- I think they have been affected by both the result and the fact you, you're getting a second chance slow down where it always looks worse. Um, I think I think this just needs to be a bit more clarification about the rules because for me, when you're talking about heading the ball, and I had someone on Twitter saying sort of this is you know akin to a dangerous bicycle kick hitting someone in the head, but I think. The, the skill of heading a ball is, is so different to trying to kick it or even if you see players go up with their with their elbows and sort of catching someone in the face this isn't like a, an appendage that you can kind of have control of this is, this is your head you don't have as much I don't know movement with it so I think that it was a situation that was unfortunate no intent you know I don't want to be and you know uh, that, that kind of commentator says he's not that type of player, but he really isn't. Um, and you know, it's it's one it's one of those situations that you see every now and again. I think there was there was something with Mane and Edison um, at last season or earlier in this season. I can't remember when. Um, and it was just it's a, it's a shame that it's overshadows what was a pretty good game. And and I thought even though the the red card came at a crucial moment for Cruzeiro, they'd been pretty shocking in the first half. I think they only had two shots in the first half. Um, and Boca were much the better side. I thought their defending for the for the first goal, uh, the Zarate go- goal was um, was so bad. They, they failed to clear the corner. Zarate picked up on the right, played a one-two with Pablo Perez, and the two sort of markers near him just pushed up, and Zarate just could sneak in behind, and the defenders on the other side of the box weren't pushing up, so he was in loads of space, and, and he finished really nicely. So... And they didn't cover themselves in glory for the, for the second goal either. So I think it was a it was a good result for Boca and certainly Perez and 
and Barrios were uh, were really good in the centre of the park, and and I just think Cruzeiro missed uh, Dearescueta as well. So yeah, um, Boca have got a hundred percent record in Libertadores knockout ties when they've won the first leg two 0 and I think we can we could all see them progressing from here. I think particularly for Boca, Tom Wilmar Barrios is is a player that you know we've consistently been impressed by in this competition, and he was fantastic again in this match, particularly that goal line clearance. The more I watched mm. that, the more amazed I was. Barrios tracking back a chipped shot from Hobinho that goes over Andrada is rolling towards the goal, and you see that type of play so often. But how composed he was in clearing that ball! It was the type of play that. You just wanted to pull up the video and just watch it over and over again because it was that impressive. So a big tip of the cap to Barrios. I thought he was fantastic for Boca. Uh, I thought they deserved the result for sure. Uh, as you rightfully said, Tom, no de Ahascaeta for Cruzeiro, and I think they kind of missed him. Hernan Barcos has been particularly poor for them. I, I thought he did not play very well against Boca tonight. Uh, in that match, I should say. Uh, and I'm very curious to see what Mano Menezes chooses to do for the second leg, whether he t- he gives Barcos another chance, whether he maybe goes for another option in Haniel, or maybe he even tries to work something with Rafael Sobis in a more striker role. I think the Ahascaeta should be able to play. That'll give Cruzeiro some hope. But unless they can score early, I think it's it's quite likely you'll see Boca see this out fairly easily in the second leg in Belo Horizonte. Yeah, I, I agree, Austin. And I think when you're just talking about those striking options, the, the difference between Boca and Cruzeiro is kind of shown up there. And we, we didn't see a great Boca in, in the, the group stages, but the fact they've got Benedetto back is, is a huge plus. And Mauro Zarate's come in and he was finding loads of space. Uh, they've got Pavon. They can bring Tevez off the bench. Uh, they've got Villa as well, the Colombian, who's made a good impact since joining. And, you know, they lost Frank Fabra to injury, but they were able to get one of the best left-backs in the division, Lucas Alassa from Tajeres. Um So they've got really good strength and depth. And we might not have seen the best of Boca so far, but it feels like they're starting to get into the, the groove a little bit. So it's going to be interesting, I think, yeah, as you said, that barrier clearance was so big. And if Cruzeiro had got one goal, then we might be looking at a different tie. And I still think it's not completely dead and buried. But yeah, I think Boca in the semis for me. As, as you guys have already mentioned, there's two Colombians there. And uh, I'd be interested to get Simon's thoughts as well in a minute. But yeah, I think Sebastian Villa, I, I was really impressed with him in, in this game. I, th- I think his pace was a real outlet for, for Boca. And uh, I think he's going to be key in the in the second leg as well. Um, I think he's going to he's going to give uh, Boca a, a real threat on the on the counter attack in in the, in that second leg, which they need. And if they get an away goal, and then suddenly the Brazilians need to score four. So, but and also just want to back up what you were saying about uh, Barrios, Wilmar Barrios, you know, a player that. We've been big fans of here at the World Football Index, and uh, yeah, he he was he was my man of the match overall. Uh, Austin, you were going to say something quickly? Yeah, and just to emphasize how deep and good this Boca Juniors squad is, Edwin Cardona, the Colombian midfielder, was an unused substitute on the night for Boca, and that's a player that I think would probably start for any team left in this competition, and that's just the depth that Boca have. Uh, they have a really good squad, and that's why they have to be among the favorites in this competition for sure. And Simon, although there's no Colombian sides, you know, deep in the Libertadores this year, you must be happy that 
a number of them are protagonists in in, in, in teams um, in the quarterfinals. Yeah, I think both Boca and River have um, probably some of the two, you know, some of the most influential players at Colombia, which is nice to see. Vija again is very, very impressive the way he's made a start. Colombian international now. I think he's got a very, very bright future. And yeah, just to see, as you mentioned, the the strength in depth is incredible. I also like that Boca have quite a balanced formation. We'll talk about teams like River, and obviously there's a lot of quality there. But I like the four-two-three-one that Boca play. I think. Uh, at times when the side isn't playing particularly well, they still have that solid core with those two strong defence midfielders with Barrios covering a lot of ground. I think that's going to be important when there's 30-minute spells in the next couple of games where they're, they're not quite at it. I think they are one of the teams that are quite well-equipped to deal with uh, with pressure and you know will we'll hang into games with that with that structure and then obviously they can if it's not working in attack they can bring on three or four top top quality international level uh, and options to, to boost that so yeah very very good from Boca um, looks like a very good team with some good options and a nice balance for me moving on um, the big underdogs in this uh, last eight were the team from northwest Argentina and that's Atletico Tucumán they lost 2-0 at home to Gremio a goal 10 minutes before half-time and a goal 10 minutes after half-time. Uh, saw Gremio come through this one with the two-goal goal advantage to take that to Porto Alegre. Um, I think it was just a case of the Brazilians being a lot more clinical in front of goal, no, Tom? Yeah, that's that's exactly the way I saw it too. It was a, a really professional away performance from Gremio who... Absorbed a lot of pressure, were clinical, and just got that goal either side of half time to to put Tucumán's chances of progressing probably to bed. I think Tucumán they've been a great story, but they they finally came up against an obstacle that was that was too big for them, and that golfing class just showed. But but they were in the game. They, I thought that I was impressed with them, considering you know I think that's only their tenth ever Libertadores game and only their second loss. So. That's pretty impressive, and and their stadium's been an absolute fortress for them. I think that was the f- the first time in 316 minutes that they'd conceded a goal at home. So I think we've got to give Gremio some credit for going to a very tough stadium and and getting the result. Um, and it was yeah, it was two uh, two of Gremio's maybe lesser known or lesser praised uh, players who who made key contributions. Um, the first was from a set piece it was a long diagonal ball from Jeromel flicked on by Cicero I think and and then Allison kind of cut in from the right flank and and got the first goal then there was a red card bang on half time um and you just knew that Tucumán were always going to struggle after that uh Javasio Núñez uh challenged for a ball knocked a Gremio player down I can't remember who it was but as Núñez was kind of seeming to hurdle over the the player on 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 the ground he kind of landed on the calf of that player and again we saw var making another impact on uh, on a game and for me this was this was the correct decision this time I, I don't know what you guys thought of it but for me it i think nunez did seem to ha- take a look down um, as he was landing and probably could have avoided the, the Gremio player. So after that, Tucumán were always going to struggle and, and Gremio got their, their second goal 10 minutes after half-time. Nice, nice goal. Again, 
the pace and width that, that those two wide players for Gremio um, can give you was was shown um, as Allison got down the right flank, fired in a low ball, and, and Everton had uh, made a really good run in behind uh, his fullback just to tap in. So I think um, I think that was a uh, yeah, perfect example of what Gremio can do. And, and Everton really should have put the tie completely to bed in the final minutes when he, when he missed a chance. But impressive from Gremio, even if they weren't necessarily at their flowing best. Um, and again, getting the job done. Uh, how, how do you rate their chances of possibly making it back-to-back titles? So. I think I think they're sort of looking ominously good. And uh, we talked about Bocca's balance and I think um, that they've got it as well. They're so good defensively and that's always a, a really important um, key characteristic to have when, in the Luetadores. And everyone's ch- chipping in. And, and like I mentioned earlier, Everton's, I think that's five goals and six uh, for a player who didn't really make as much of an impact in last year's Libertadores. And he's just stepped up and he's he's earned a Brazil call-up because of it, those performances in the Libertadores and and in the in the league as well. So they're they're looking good, and I would put them up there with um, with probably Boca and Palmeiras as as the three sides looking most likely. I don't know if uh, if Austin has any more thoughts on, on, on whether they, they can challenge for re, uh, retaining that title. Yeah, I think you absolutely have to consider them among the favorites to, to lift the title again, partly because, and this was something we talked about going into the group stage, Gremio still really haven't had to play anybody good in this Libertadores. They had a very kind draw in the group stage, kind of walked the group, uh, probably should have done better against Estudiantes than they did, but they advanced in dramatic fashion this Tucumán team I, I think we're all in agreement are probably the worst of the eight teams left so they basically made it to the semifinals now as long as they don't somehow shift this result in the second leg without having to have been tested and that can be a good thing because you know they haven't been tested but maybe that could work against them as well if they do come up against a really talented team I think my one question mark for Gremio is, is what they do at striker. Uh, they didn't have Andre or Jael. They're two options at number nine in this match. So they played Luan in a false nine role. I don't think that's going to work going forward. Uh, maybe in the away leg, it's something they can consider because they did look very good. They didn't create a ton in this match. They were just very clinical when they did, which I think you have to give them credit for. So that's something to kind of watch going forward. Uh, but they, they were very good in this match. There's no doubt about that. A deserved result. Uh, like Tom said, I thought Tucumán were pretty good for the first half an hour, and they probably should have gotten a goal during that stretch. Uh, they, they may have deserved it. But once they went behind, and then certainly once they went down to 10, it, it kind of felt like it was going to be too much to get back. A tip of the cap to Pulgo Rodriguez, who played well. Uh, but Tucumán's best chances came off of dead balls because it was the only time Rodriguez was able to find space. Gremio did a really good job of marking him out of this match. Um, so credit to Gremio for the performance. I kind of find it kind of interesting that there was uh, there was no game where both teams scored this week in in the Libertadores. stories. Um, you know, plenty of clean sheets going around. Obviously, Independiente River had no goals in it at all, which we come on to last. Um, and yeah, I sort of back up what Tom's saying there about, you know, defences tend to win championships, don't they, and uh, and titles. But I don't see too many goals coming up in the, in the semi-finals. 
and final of this Libertadores because there's, there are quite a few tight defences left in this Libertadores. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be the, the, the free-flowing football that, that we're all hoping for. Certainly, goals is probably that one area where Gremio might be lacking um, compared to maybe some of the other sides. Boca seem to have a few more goals in them, um, as do Palmeiras. And, and as we've seen from, from River, they're, they're quite happy to go for a pragmatic uh, result when it, when it suits them as well, if, um, you know, if, if they get through, of course. So, yeah, it might not be one for the sort of casual spectator, but I think we're getting down to some genuinely really good sides. Yeah, I was um, I was very impressed with Gremio, uh, and again, there's the question as to whether their incisive goals that kind of come out of nowhere are because of their quality and their their precision in their in their attacks, or whether they're just facing pretty poor teams. So we'll have to see because they didn't they didn't control this game in terms of possession, but they looked very controlled throughout. And um, you know, Tucumán aren't very good, but they were very spirited, and obviously that kind of backfired and they lost complete control of themselves for that 10 minutes before halftime had a few decisions go against them I think it was a red card but uh, you know there was a lot of frustration in the team and you could see it boiling over they kind of found themselves a bit of composure in the second half but uh, Gremio made this look very very comfortable um, and that's very very impressive so we'll just have to see as you mentioned there isn't there isn't clear evidence yet that they're going to be able to find these goals uh, against the strongest sides in the tournament. We haven't seen it yet, but we'll, obviously they have the quality there. Um, but obviously they have a very strong base. Um, and there's lots to, lots to admire about this very composed away performance in an in intense atmosphere uh, there in Tucumán. Indeed, indeed. Well, let's move on to a game I attended, and that was Colo Colo 0, Palmeiras 2. Um, I'll actually come across to you first, Austin, and hear your thoughts on the game. Uh, from your perspective there of, 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 of watching it and uh, and then I'll come in with mine. You must be pretty happy with, with how this went, especially considering the pressure that Colo Colo put on at the start of that second half. Yeah, for sure. This match, I think outside of the first 10 to 15 minutes, played out pretty much how I expected it to play out which was a lot of the ball for Colo Colo, just about everything going through Jorge Valdivia. Palmeiras pinned back under pressure, but maybe not under siege, uh, and then looking to counter and get a goal from there. But the reason that Palmeiras were able to do that was because they scored three minutes into this match. It, just a nightmare start for Colo Colo. I thought Palmeiras right from the gun kind of came out and played in a way that I didn't necessarily expect them to, which was get the ball and go attack. And and they they earned a free kick 40 seconds into this match off the whistle of Andres Cunha. And then they scored three minutes in. Uh, some really good play in the box by Palmeiras. Uh, a great cutback from, from Moises, their midfielder, to find Bruno and Hiki, who was just kind of left all alone by the Colo Colo defenders, who all got sucked back towards goal. And so Bruin Hickey was, was unmarked from the penalty spot and, and just blasted it past Orion. That was 1-0 for Palmeiras. And then even for the next 10 or 15 minutes, I thought Verdown had a lot of the ball. Yeah, I wonder... Sorry, I'll, say, I'll just jump in it because, you know, you say that you were surprised that Palmeiras started that way. I wasn't so much because I did wonder if that would possibly be a tactic of theirs to really go for it in that first 10, 15 minutes just because... Um, Colo Colo haven't played in almost three weeks, um, you know, meaning that maybe they thought they would, you know, catch them a little bit undercooked. 
And and I, I think they did. You know, I don't know if that was a tactic that they set out from, you know, training in the days before, or if that was just something that developed when the match started the way that it did. But then I thought after those 10 or 15 minutes, this match kind of settled into the rhythm that we expected, which was a lot of the ball for Colo Colo. Not a ton of clear cut chances, but certainly a couple that they could have done better with. Uh, Perez in particular had their best chance of the first half. Uh, the ball was pushed to him. Weberton, the Palmeiras goalkeeper, made a save on a free kick that kind of sent him the wrong way, pushed it right to Perez, and he skied it over the crossbar. Uh, and then in the second half, uh, Palmeiras were probably pretty fortunate that this match wasn't leveled in the first 20 to 25 minutes of the second half because it was all colo-colo. There are a couple of penalty shouts that I thought were were rightfully turned down but certainly could have gone the other way. Lucas Barrios, another ex-Palmeiras player playing for Colo-Colo, had a chance with this glancing header that he just didn't steer on target that he probably should have done better with. Uh, and then Palmeiras were able to strike on a really well-worked counterattack. You know, William has been so dangerous on the wings for them this year, and is particularly in this competition. He did well to cut inside on his right foot, had a very good shot that Orion did really well to save onto the post. And then I think Dudu deserves a lot of credit for the patience that he showed on the second goal for Palmeiras. He checked his run on the shot for William to make sure he stayed onside so often that attacking player kind of loses sight of where he is and just strays offside. And then is, is you know, the flag goes up when he goes to the rebound. So it came off the post and then he did really well to touch it once with his left foot to kind of take his time. Orion started charging off his line and then he just hit it hard and Orion got a piece of it. But because of how hard Dudu hit it, there wasn't much that Orion could do. That was 2-0 for Palmeiras. Then we had a controversial red card, which I'll let you get into, Adam, at the very end. That didn't really have an effect on the match, but certainly didn't help the feeling for Colo Colo down the stretch. And it's another 2-0 away win for Palmeiras. Uh, they did it in the round of 16. They obviously didn't close that tie out as well as they could have. But I think having that experience will help them close this tie out a bit better. Uh, a quick note for Palmeiras, this Libertadores, they've now won in six different countries. They beat Junior in Colombia. They beat Alianza Lima in Peru. They beat Colo Colo in Chile. They beat Cerro Porteño in Paraguay. They beat Boca Juniors in Argentina. And then, of course, they've won matches at home in Brazil. That's a pretty impressive feet for Palmeiras, I think it must be said. And a final note from me, Jorge Valdivia was really good in this match for Colo Colo. He didn't do as much as far as chance creation as maybe he could have, but you could tell how keyed in Palmeiras were on him. Both defensive midfielders had a yellow card by halftime, and that was because of how good Valdivia was. He's just so skilled and so talented. Uh, a little upsetting for him, for sure, that Colo Colo weren't able to create a little bit more because this absolutely could have been a 1-1 result heading back to Sao Paulo. But that's just kind of not the way that it fell on the night. Yeah, in the press conference after the match, Galari's eyes lit up when he was asked to describe the performance of Jorge Valdivia in this one. So, so yeah, he, uh, he certainly impressed. And, uh, and I noticed a couple of the Palmeiras players also marked him out as, you know, to say what a game that he uh, had and, and what trouble he caused them. But unfortunately, I didn't feel that there was enough players on the same wavelength last night um, as, as Valdivia. And, uh, and I think that was a factor here in the loss for the Chileans. Um, September is an emotional month in, in Chile. I, I, I do want to say that, you know, um, you know the, the 11th of, of the month that marks like one of the darkest days in its history. And, and then you've got 
what we've just been celebrating, you know, there's been three days off holiday here in Chile, celebrating the independence of, of, of the country. And, uh, and Hector Dabia, Colo Colo's manager, you know, cancelled all the celebrations for the players. So they didn't really have time, much time to spend with their families this week. So it, it was, and, and there's been no football for two weeks as well. Um, and so it meant that Colo Colo, actually it was almost three weeks since they last played a game. As, as I mentioned earlier, you know, that possibly played into them looking quite rusty at the start of this tie. So, yeah, it basically didn't really fall at the right time, this match. And, and another factor perhaps was a reduced capacity. You know, Colo Colo's real sort of big, loud and... Uh, and uh, expressive end of, of the ground uh, where the Gara Blanca, their, their ultras, um, stand. The, the capacity of that was cut by more than half, I think, which, uh, and, and it was notable as well. You know, the atmosphere for this game was nowhere near as loud as it was for the, for the Corinthians match. Possibly not helped by the fact that Palmeiras scored the early goal, of course, as well. Um, but yeah, I think you know, for Colo-Colo, it's, 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 it's not too dissimilar to how probably Tucumán are feeling with uh, with losing their tie against Gremio. You know, but they had the chances, but they just didn't take them. And they probably had better chances than, than Tucumán did against Gremio as well. So they'd probably be feeling even worse. Um, you know, there was probably three, maybe four very good chances for both sides in this game. Palmeiras took two of theirs and Colo Colo couldn't take any of theirs. Um, so yeah, that that will be a great frustration for for the Chileans. I've, <laughs> I think the the moment of the first half for for the home side came with an outrageous piece of skill from Jorge Valdivia. Um, he seemed to be going. He he was kind of in in the just just to the left of the centre circle. Looked like he was he was going back, and uh, to, he had two Palmeiras players tracking him, and and he just backheeled it through through the through like the tunnel between those two Palmeiras players, and he ran onto it as well, and it just brought a huge roar from the from the fans, and and that actually set the tone for what was probably the next thirty minutes where Colo Colo really dominated this game. Um, but like I say, unfortunately, they they couldn't they couldn't find the goal. Um, and and the other and and apart from those glorious missed chances, there was also the bar calls. Um, you know, there was some paranoia heading into this match that because of the fuss that Cruzeiro had caused the night before, and saying that our Brazilian sides, you know, should withdraw from Commonwealth and all this, there was paranoia here in Chile that that would mean that the referee for this game would overcompensate and uh, and basically give every major decision uh, the way of the Brazilians. And uh, and I'm not saying that that's why he gave uh, major decisions the way the way of uh, Palmeiras, but that's certainly how it played out. So there was there's a bit of bitterness um, in, in in the stadium during and after the match. As well, um, yeah. The 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 handball decision for the for the possible penalty, um, 
yeah, it, it probably isn't a penalty, to be fair. But the interesting thing about that was once the referee you know, went over to the screen on the side to review it, you know, myself and, you know, 30,000 other people in the stadium, at that point, I'm pretty sure that the referee is going to award the penalty because anybody who watched the World Cup, you know, 90, at least 90% of decisions, which went to VAR, I think, ended up being sort of positive decisions. So, for the attacking side, so... Yeah, I, I think it. I think it was. Uh, I think that was the biggest moment of this match, actually, because once that decision went against them, you can almost feel sort of the hope and the optimism being sucked out of of El Monumental. Um, and yeah, and Austin mentioned also the decision at the end. You know, it didn't particularly affect the game, obviously, with it being in the in the last few seconds. But you know, it does add slightly to the to the narrative that nothing went Colo Colo's way is Damien Perez, uh, the Argentine left back for Colo Colo kind of went I think I think he went for the ball but his his studs ended up sort of raking down the, the leg of the of the Palmeiras player. For me it was a definite definite yellow card and I don't think it was a clear and obvious error which needed to be reviewed by Bar but it was, and um, and uh, and the referee decided um, it was it was worthy of a red. So, so yeah, um, a disappointing and frustrating night for 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 the for for Colo Colo in the in the end. And now, despite what their goalkeeper uh, Orion and uh, their manager Dabia said. After the game, both were optimistic that they could turn it around in Sao Paulo. I think they face a real sort of Herculean task now to 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 get back in this. But you know, the Orion, the Colo Colo goalkeeper, did point out that Sarah Bordenio almost took uh, Palmeiras to penalties. So, and they they also faced the same task of being two 0 down. But yeah. It was uh, it, it'd be interesting to see how this second leg plays out, but unfortunately, I don't give the Chileans much hope. Yeah, I agree. I think that's probably the end of the road for Colo Colo. Um, and I liked what you said about the comparison to the Tucumán game. Really, it's, it was seemed not just because of the scoreline, but it seemed to be a case of a of a good Brazilian side picking off one of the the tournament's remaining underdogs, who kind of got as far as as you think they could and. And again, with those key mercurial kind of playmakers in Pulgar Rodriguez for Tucumán and Valdivia for for Colo Colo, it definitely there was a definite game plan to to try and mark him out. And credit to him for pulling off those great skills and and almost getting something out of the game. But I think he was fouled nine times, and that makes him the first player in this year's competition to have have been like fouled nine or above times in in two games i think he got hacked a bit against delphine and it just shows that if you can kind of try and stop him playing then you then you've got a good chance and, and maybe the fact that colo colo and tuckelman were too reliant on those playmakers um sort of shows you that they they were never going to get too far in this competition um and as as austin said i think 
Palmeiras as a waveform is is a really important thing to take from this because that's five away victories, their best ever run. I think um, in 1971 they got four, and I really think that could be key to them certainly getting to a final at least because if you can if you can do well um, away from home, then you always back yourself at home, and I, th- I think that's uh, that's really important. So again. Like Gremio, not the most dominant performance, but clinical, decisive, um, and enough to show that there's more to come from them. And a, and a quick little mention for Moise's uh, green swimming cap as well. I think that that's one that Austin should add to his uh, his Deportivo Cuenca shirt that he's that he's buying. They'd, they'd look great together with a green cap and a red shirt, wouldn't they? Quickly on Palmeiras' away form, yeah, not. Not only have they won all of their away matches, they've only conceded one goal away in this Copa Libertadores, and that was a 72nd-minute penalty to Alianza Lima after Palmeiras were already 3-0 up. And like you rightfully said, Tom, that has to have them feeling quite confident going forward because away form can be the difference in this competition. If you can get results away from home, uh, that's obviously a very, very good sign. Yeah, one thing they might want to be a little bit careful of in, in, in the return leg, and it, you know, jumping off the back there of uh, of Tom's stat about the number of times Valdivia was fouled, I think it was Colo Colo's three best chances in this game all came from in swinging free kicks. Now, if uh, if Valdivia can pick up fouls, you know, in and around the box again in the away leg, you know. Maybe the hope there for Colo Colo is this time they can get their head onto it and the, and the ball just falls the right side of the post this time as, as they all just sort of brush right past the post. But yeah, I think uh, yeah, I, I think I think you know 99% of the time in this situation, you know the Palmeiras would, would go through. But yeah, a glimmer of hope there maybe. Right, um, so oh, we've just got independent the river left, no? Okay. Yep. And last but not least is Independiente Zero, River Zero, um, a story of two goalkeepers having, ex- having exceptional matches, I think it's fair to say, this one. Um, I was actually a little bit annoyed it finished nil-nil as I thought about betting on that scoreline. Um, and uh, and I didn't do the bet in the end, but uh, and it came to pass. So, but yeah, I think uh, I, th- I think like I say, the performances of the two goalkeepers here were, was was the was the big talking point post match. No, Tom. Yeah, very much so. I think even though it was a, a nil all, it was probably my favourite game of the the week. To be fair, in this all Argentinian Clásico, um, two sides with a lot of quality and and try to play decent football um but yeah the goalkeepers were fantastic Armani in particular made two brilliant saves to to keep River in the game and Campana the Uruguayan was was very busy as well even though most of them were a bit more routine and yeah the nil always is quite a, a river plate result uh they were, I think they went through a, about five or six games in the league already this season where they were just drawing every single game nil all. And, and we saw them do the same thing to uh, Independiente's rivals, Racing, 
in the in the previous round getting that nil all away from home and then and then backing themselves to to do the business in El Monumental so yeah uh, I think Independiente um, will be they'll feel a bit unfortunate not to not to be ahead in this um, not not to be ahead in this fixture because Maxi Mesa hit the bar Gaston Silva hit the post and I think they really needed to get a result here today because going into the game River have got a far superior historic record in in Comnibol competitions um you know it might not count for much but I think in certainly in Argentina they give give that kind of thing quite a lot of weight and River have won nine times out of uh, 10 games I think uh, or 10 draw nine nine wins and 10 draws or something like that um and Independiente haven't won a home game against Argentina Argentinian opponents in the Libertadores since 1990. So there's a bit of a monkey on their back there and, and they came so, so close to getting it. Um, yeah, like I said, Meza with that with that great shot that hit the crossbar and then Armani making a great save to keep out the rebound. Um, and uh, Gaston Silva, who'd come on for Francisco Silva, um, he almost capped off a brilliant team move. I thought that was just an example of the football that independent they can play under Olan um and Gigliotti really should have scored against Armani as well when when he got in after Palacios's unfortunate slip um River had their chances uh Piti Martinez uh Borre right at the end as well had a, a header that just went quite a little bit wide but yeah nil all and I think that that favors River really um they're very pragmatic when they need to be but they've, they've got quality there, and I, I think they'll probably have just about too much to for, for Independiente. But certainly, it could still go either way, and it's it's certainly the tightest of the of the um, ties left in the competition. So, one one to watch next week for sure. Uh, yeah, no, for me, um, this was a really good game as well. I agree, I enjoyed this game. River for me are a really interesting team, and it'll be interesting to hear what Tom thinks, but. Looking at the the side and the way they set up, it's kind of like a 4-4-2. Obviously, Rafael Santos Borre, the Colombian, um, drops back and covers a lot of ground. And they are quite disciplined, but they play two kind of playmakers or attacking midfielders in Gonzalo Martinez and Juan Fernando Quintero, kind of out wide. And then they'll come inside to receive the ball. Um, And then obviously Ezequiel Palacios is kind of a mixed midfielder, which puts a lot of uh, emphasis on Poncio. I know they've been getting good results, but it's kind of seems to me interesting. I'm not sure if it's necessarily the best way to get the, to get the best out of these players. Um, I don't know. They obviously have a good result, uh, clean sheet record at home, and they've done well defensively. But it does kind of feel a little bit like they're squeezing a lot of players in a in quite you know, players who are traditionally quite narrow, playing more uh, wide to kind of balance out the field. And obviously they've been getting the results but for me it does feel that some of their players are kind of not necessarily in their best positions and I do think maybe against the stronger sides they may be exposed particularly on the wings how have they been managing this in the Libertadores and and does do you have any concerns about the way they set up Tom yeah I think you make a good point there because you look at their fullbacks as well and particularly since Sirachi's uh, left for, for Leipzig Milton Casco is not the greatest fullback and Montiel is still just a young guy sort of making his way into the first team and and not you well not what I would see as a typical attacking fullback um so they've got a lot of strength in the center of the pitch but 
I do feel like there is weaknesses out wide, especially when you've got the likes of uh, Martinez and Quintero cutting in. There is a fluidity to it, which I think helps kind of not necessarily confuse opponents, but it's it's hard to really peg what style they're going to go for, what uh, formation. And I think Palacios does really help with that because he can sit back there with Ponzio as, as like a double pivot or he can he's got the legs to kind of do running further forward as well and and Boré is he's got great movement and he he kind of does a lot of selfless running um for Prato just to kind of stand around and hopefully bang one in um but I think the fact that they're kind of lots of players not in their preferred position is I don't know, helped slightly by the fact that you've got a player of the class of uh, Quintero and and the flexibility of the likes of Martinez and Plasas who can go wide, who can play centrally. So, yeah, I, I agree that that might hold them back from being a true um, sort of title favourite. Um, I, I would put them maybe just a little bit below uh, the likes of the, the, the clubs we've already mentioned. But, you know, they've got some good options off the bench. Um, Rodrigo Moore and Ignacio Scocco at this level are, are good. And that they are very, very defensively solid. So we, we and, and they've got one of the best keepers on, on the continent. So they've got enough and they've got the nous and the experience under Gajardo to, to eke out results. But it's certainly not a um, flowing riverside of, uh, of old even if they can produce brilliant individual moments. Yeah, no, and I, I do like the way Quintero finds space. I do think it's very interesting the way the players start out wide and then cut inside and find that space. It's always a question as to how to get Quintero on the ball. Colombia have been playing a little bit deeper. Uh, at times, obviously, he's a more traditional number 10 behind the striker. So it is an interesting way for him to find space by cutting inside behind maybe the defensive midfielders or the opposition. But I do think... We've got a lot of teams in this competition, you know, like Zaboka, uh, Crucero, who teams that can um, really attack from wide positions. And I do kind of worry maybe Quintero as the as the right-sided midfielder when they are defending um, could potentially be an area they can be got at uh, in transition. But it is a it is an attractive style of football, and the, the movement is interesting. Uh, it's just uh, it does seem that there's quite a few variables in terms of making things click. And I, I've seen they've struggled for goals at times. So I think they'll all get through on quality. But for me, there may be games where they struggle, um, given the fluidity of their approach. I think for me, this match actually showcased why you've seen Quintero come off the bench so much for River Plate. Because this match kind of died down in the last half an hour. It kind of felt like both teams were playing not to lose. Which, which is an understandable approach to it. But by that point, Quintero was already off the pitch. He substituted in the 57th minute. And at that moment, this match was screaming out for somebody like Quintero with tired legs on both sides to kind of make those crucial passes that could have let River sneak a goal. So I know so often we've criticized River for leaving Quintero on the bench to start. But this actually could have been a match where it might have made sense for Gallardo to, to bring Quintero off the bench rather than start him and play him in the first hour. I, I don't know. It's, it's just weird how that sometimes works out. Okay. Um, before we end the pop, we're actually just going to do a few minutes on where some of the common nations are at in their, in their current cycles. 
Um, I'm going to start with Simon, who's going to talk about where Colombia are at um, post Russia. Um, I believe uh, without a manager at the moment, uh, but with possibly their most talented ever group. So um, plenty to look forward to, but just missing that piece of the puzzle at the moment, which is, of course, a manager. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, a couple of decent results, a, a close win against Venezuela and a fairly even draw against Argentina. But uh, the core of the team has been based around the, the side from Russia. They were a lot of young players brought into the squad, but they only features off the bench, really. A big fan of Camposano. Um, obviously, we mentioned uh, Vija. He got some minutes as well. There's, there's some interesting young players coming in. Uh, Morelos uh, from Rangers. Um, missed the open goal from two yards and then blocked a potential winner with his ass. So not necessarily the ideal start for him. Uh, fortunately, the rebound was converted. Um, for Colombia, it's still a case of what, what next. These friendlies were definitely treading water. Um, still looking for a coach. Tato Martino seems to be a, uh, a popular option for the remaining, uh, for, the, for the nation still looking for a manager. Um, United States as well, Mexico potentially in for him as well. But there's still no clear idea where they're moving. The next friendly is going to be managed by the youth coach. So we'll have to see what happens moving forward. But uh, lots of good talent. Cucho Hernandez looks likely to be included for the next round of friendlies, which is very, very interesting, which will be very nice to see. But the big question is who's going to be leading the side and what will that mean in terms of direction? All these young players, we don't know the formation, we don't know strategies. So it really just is a showcase. And I don't think Colombia necessarily used the last two friendlies as a chance to really have a look at these new guys. Instead, bringing one or two in, but it's Jason Morillo. We, we know what he's about. Um, so, yeah, kind of kind of treading water, really. Rueda, um, his mother's unwell, has been linked recently with uh, the Colombia job. Obviously, recently given the Chile job. Um, potentially looking to come back to Colombia. Colombia have said they haven't spoken to him. He's not on their radar at the moment. Um, but that would be a popular option. Uh, yeah. How has he been doing with Chile? And do you think there's any chance of that happening, Adam? Yeah, so Rueda's uh, spell in charge of Chile has been, in my opinion, promising so far. Um, you know, he steadied the ship. Um, Although his, it seems like he doesn't really have much a relationship with the captain of the last decade, Claudio Bravo, um, who's injured anyway and out for the majority of this season. So, but you know the goalkeeping areas is one area where Chile looked to have solved it for the next few years anyway, with uh, the 30-year-old Gabriel Arias coming in to the side and really impressing. He he's, he he earned a move to Racing. From Union La Calera here in Chile um, earlier earlier this year, and, and he impressed in in a in a couple of games in Libertadores already this year. Um, but Chile are in an awkward position now. Um, if they were to lose Rueda at this point, then um, I, I would be very concerned. Um, although he does have a four-year contract, so. Um, the hope there is, you know, he he he's a good enough man to to honour that contract and, uh, and 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 not run away. Um, but he does have his critics here. Um, some of his uh, squad selections 
have been very bizarre. Um, certainly the last one, uh, which included three or four players, which you know many here, including myself, would you know three or four players that you you would just never think are, are good enough to play uh, for 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 Chile. Um, and and he and he also left out, uh, you know, players like uh, Angelo Arreos uh, and Victor uh, Davila, who's and Davila's having an amazing campaign so far in in Mexico. Uh, so it's you know, if, if he was to go, I think it would cause a mixed reaction. It wouldn't cause sort of oh, complete resignation from the Chilean public. You know, the fact that he's only been in charge of friendlies so far also makes it, you know, kind of hard to judge where exactly he's at. His first competitive game is set to be the opening match of the Copa America next year. And so it won't probably be until after Copa America next year that a true a true opinion uh, from the Chilean public would have would have formed on on Barreda, and I include myself in that. I think it's very hard to judge on 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 friendlies alone, and one of those friendlies in in the, in the last international break got cancelled. So, you know, Chile went all the way over to uh, to to Asia to play Japan and South Korea, and the the first match against Japan ended up being being called off because of a typhoon. And and flooding in the area meant there was no sort of electricity or or transport. So. So yeah, it, it, at the moment Chile are are in a transition from after the disappointment of missing out on on the World Cup. The thing I liked about the reaction to missing out on the World Cup that the appointment of of Rueda was made quite quickly. Um, and if you look. You know, I, I think Ecuador and Paraguay, two of the other sides who missed out, they've only recently appointed their managers. So it felt like Chile were ahead of, of, of the rest of the field in their cycle in, in one way. You know, they, they'd already started to put the foundations in place. And, uh, and obviously Argentina are in a bit of a mess at the moment, post-Russia. And, uh, and Colombia are yet to appoint anybody. So, you know, I, I was fairly optimistic about where Chile are at. But, yeah, this possible news that they may lose their manager and not just lose their manager, but to lose it to one of their rivals would be would be a bit of a blow, I think, uh, for, for any optimistic Chilean supporters. Um, yeah, it's... Uh, it, it, in in the in the last friendly against South Korea, they drew nil nil. It featured um, an excellent performance from Arturo Vidal. Yeah, the kind of performance we come to expect from him. Um, but it also featured one of the worst misses I can remember from a Chilean player, and it came in the last second of the game to win it, where the playmaker Diego Valdez rounded the goalkeeper. And, uh, and from about 14 yards out, managed, I think it did hit a div- divot, to be fair to him, but it, it ended up going well over the bar. And, uh, and that was the best chance of the game. And, uh, and it was blown. But yeah, I think, uh, I think Chile are, are in a slightly 
uh, bizarre position at the moment. It'd be interesting to see how this Ruella situation is resolved. Um, moving on to another another nation, which I also see is in in a bit of a slightly strange situation. That is Uruguay, as you know, they they performed fairly impressively at times in Russia. Uh, for me, they didn't quite maximise their their potential. And one of the reasons they didn't maximise their potential, in my opinion, was their was their was the conservatism of their manager Tavares. Um, and I felt that it was the time to end his reign as Uruguay boss. And when they thrashed Mexico four one with probably what was one of their best attacking performances of years in a in a friendly recently. Uh, it, it felt like you know the time had come to make that change, no Tom. But um, we're, you know, we've, as as that friendly for those who don't know, that friendly was played with Tabarez not in charge, but with Fabian Guido, his assistant, long term assistant in charge, and, and who's uh, who's managed their youth youth sides in the past to to some success. And I think. Um, it's hard to judge just basing it on Twitter, but it seems like the majority favoured um, Guedo taking over now from from Tavares and uh, and you know the fact that he's worked he's already worked with a lot of these younger players closely in the past. It felt like sort of a natural uh, step for him to take them on at senior level as well. But it's been announced. Uh, I think it was earlier today. No. Um, that Tavares will in fact have another four years in charge of of La Celeste. So, Tom, what are your what are your thoughts on this? It's it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because um, I almost think that uh, Tavares is has gone the way of, of Arsene Wenger a little bit in terms of he's done so much for Uruguay and he's you know you you can't fault the work he's done and the the structures that he's put in. In place, but you you do get to that point where you think now probably is the moment just to to freshen things up, especially with the changing nature of that side. It's it's gone from a more rugged warrior like approach to a really quite technically gifted and, and and good crop of youngsters coming through. And and I think with that, like we saw with that friend you mentioned, that that maybe Coito is the man to take it on. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure if um, public opinion is fully against Tavares yet. I think it's still, I think there's a lot of goodwill to him. Um, I think certainly some of the criticisms I've seen around Tavares recently is more about the, the statue that's getting made of him and, and who should be paying for it and where it should be and, and things like that. I think the vast majority of the public probably are still behind him and, and will continue to, to do so. But I think most people who watch the Uruguay team with a, a little bit more of a, a, a critical view, um, analytical view probably think you know what that that would have been a good time you've done well and, and I mean there are even some voices out there who who see the, the the last couple of World Cups as a missed opportunity for um for Uruguay to even go further than than they did uh, it's, it's always a tricky one when certainly when people are looking in from the outside and and seeing this you know small nation consistently punching well above its weight but that just speaks of the 
the quality and depth that is there that, that they could maybe even go on further. So, yeah, I was I was um, not massively surprised, but a, a little bit disappointed that they didn't, you know, use this as a good opportunity to to begin the new generation of uh, of Uruguayan football. But there we go. We'll, we'll see how it goes. He's he's a steady hand and certain stability can can do well and not many other south american nations can can talk about that right now and uh and I'll, I'll stay with you what do you make of argentina at the moment yeah they're, in, they're sort of complete opposite uh in terms of organization and and uh and continuity they're obviously we had a couple of friendlies under escaloni the this new sort of interim manager, but I was, I was quite glad the way he went for a lot of young players, a lot of inexperienced guys sort of looking really to the future. Um, and I, I liked the way he, that he talked as well, um, both before and after the game, he wasn't talking like a, a guy who thought he was just there for a short time. He, he was talking as if he was generally put himself in the mix and, and coming up with some, ideas about how they want to play they want to maybe go a bit more direct a bit more high intensity pressing up the field trying to win the ball up the field and there were certainly some some positives certainly in the first half of both the um, Guatemala and Colombia games I thought I thought they were quite good and then the the changes that were made um, saw an inevitable kind of drop off bit of a shame that we didn't see Icardi or Dybala really um kick on and, and make a make a claim to be the new faces of this new generation but I, th- I think that will come in time and yeah it just just remains uh, to be seen who is going to be the the coach long term um, there's even talk of Tata Martino coming back but I think he'd be mad to do that um, maybe Peckerman will, will come across in some kind of director of football overseeing role which he obviously had great success in the past but yeah, right now I think it's um, it's hopefully for once going to be more about a long-term aim rather than um, looking to do something at the Copa America next year. Yeah, I mean we've spoken before about Colombian coaches and the massive shortage, and somehow miraculously we've ended up with three <laughs> coaching nations across the continent. I mean I think in terms of Ecuador they've got Bolillo, who is a man with you know, not many ideas, and Paraguay have gone for Osorio, who's a man with maybe a few too many ideas. So I think it's very interesting to see how those nations are going to go. I think with Ecuador, Bolillo is kind of a resignation that maybe they don't have the technical level and they're going to just try and fight their way through uh, with a with a big Bolillo in charge. Um, you know, I you know they have pace out wide they have good physicality as i may have mentioned before so maybe it will work or maybe if they'll qualify i think if ecuador qualify it will be a, a reflect poorly on the other sides because i think this is a move towards kind of a limited approach a limited tactical approach and just being very hard working and, and doing their best with asoria i think it could be very interesting with paraguay there's lots of good young players in paraguay there's some you know players in the mls who have done very well and i think they may have the humility to kind of embrace his his tactical approach and his his fresh ideas. So I think that could be something that could be quite interesting. Obviously, Venezuela, uh, uh, in theory, sticking with Dudamel. Um, we have heard in Colombia that Nacional are apparently negotiating 
Um, he wants $1.1 million a year. Columbia, uh, National have offered 700000 So given the situation in Venezuela, I think they'd like to keep him, but there may be a way that he could be bought out. It'd be surprising if a Colombian club could compete in terms of wages, but there is a story in Colombia that they're desperately trying to get him, which would be interesting. And then Bolivia continuing with Cesar Farias. So there's interesting things happening across the continent. We'll see how this all falls into place. Also Brazil, um, Austin, Brazil, Chiche. How do you think he's going to evolve? Is it going to be more of the same uh, with the, with moving up, for, moving forward? Yeah, just very quickly, because I think Brazil are certainly far and away the, the nation in South America with the most consistency and with the most kind of desire to just keep things the way they are. Um, Cheech is still in charge, will continue to be in charge. Uh, solid, friendly results, 2-0 win over the United States, 5-0 win over El Salvador. Cheech is doing well to rotate in some players that he wants to get a look at. The hard thing is, it kind of feels like even though he's bringing in new players, they won't get much of a chance because that's how deep Brazil is. Uh, positive to see Lucas Paqueta getting a chance. I think he's a player who could really help Brazil going forward. Artur as well. Those are kind of two passing midfield players that Brazil really hasn't had. Good to see Richarlison take his chance in the Brazilian national team. Uh, he played well in, in both of the friendlies, but you know it, it kind of is going to be what it has been for Brazil, and, and they'll consider themselves among the favorites as, as we head towards Copa America. And I think we should just finish by uh, touching on Venezuela, um, who suffered a... Uh, well, I, I think they, they were fairly disappointing in the end in their 2-1 defeat to, to Colombia, especially as they started that match so well. Um, you know, the first 10 minutes certainly belonged to them. They went 1-0 up, and, uh, and, it, and it looked like they really had the measure of the Colombian defence, but... Then they seemed to sit back, and uh, and Quintero ended up uh, taking over the game for, for for the Colombians, and they could never really get into their rhythm again for Venezuela. So um, they they did follow that defeat up with a with a two 0 win, I think it was, wasn't it? Away to Panama with uh, Rondon grabbing a couple, but from what I've seen, I think Venezuela still need to become a little bit. You know, if if they do want to qualify for Qatar uh, or make a big impression next year in the Copa America, I think the next uh, step for them is they're going to have to try and be the protagonists a little bit, a little bit more in matches. I don't know what you guys make of that. Yeah, I think that's true. I think they've suddenly got some uh, exciting new ingredients to add to the mix. And I think it's about how they use those while maintaining. The things that have kept them competitive over the last five years uh, and increasingly competitive, I think they now have players who can be difference makers and they don't have to rely on, on moments so much. Obviously, that's a careful balance to find, um, but it's it, they've got a great goalkeeper. They've got two good attackers as well, which is, which is nice to see. So there's definitely some really interesting developments in Venezuela and it's going to be a, a fun but tricky job for the coach. So we'll have to see. The one nation we haven't mentioned as well, we can't forget them, is uh, Peru. Um, I don't think too much has changed. It looks like Gareca is definitely trying to continue uh, some of the successful uh, things that they've done to get them to where they were. World Cup, a, a respectable performance. I think the big question for them is who's their number nine moving forward. Uh, Paulo Guerrero, obviously, situation is complicated and uh, it doesn't obviously going to be a long-term solution. So I think they've got a good balance with width and with some good holding midfielders, but yeah. I think they need that striker and a centre-back probably as well. 
I watched their I watched their friendlies against uh, against Germany in the Netherlands, and it was just basically you know watching them in the World Cup. Uh, yeah, but they played some nice football. They created some good chances, um, and and in both those games they did actually manage to take the lead. But but in the end, you know, uh, one or two mistakes at the back, uh, one or two moments lost in concentration, ended up costing them, and they ended up losing both games narrowly in the end. So so yeah, I think I think Gareca's task is, is is to try and eliminate those uh, those silly mistakes and, uh, and and try and get sort of ninety minutes worth of performances out of these players rather than sort of uh, one half of decent football or just thirty minutes. Here and there, um, and, and when they are on top of games, they've got to they've got to take their chances more. Okay, that, that wraps us up for for this show. Um, hopefully, our listeners have enjoyed it. Simon, I come to you to see if you've got anything to plug. Uh, no, not really. Uh, just follow my Twitter. I'll pop up here and there on on things from time to time occasional radio things uh, my twitter has some interesting transfer stuff i hope there's a there's a kid a 18 year old kid juan peñalosa the star of colombia's u17 side who's just moved to huesca in spain so there's a bit of information about him he's a very interesting player who's been playing for an amateur youth side here in colombia and, and now he's off to la liga so big fan of him and it'll be interesting to see how he does over there with our with our favorite cucho up front yeah, I, th- I think you're due on TalkSport this Saturday uh, night, uh, Simon. I think, it, I think it's your turn. I, I was on there last week. and Yeah, so for those listeners of this show who don't know, um, the World Football Index, South American Football Show, sort of has a regular slot now on, 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 on TalkSport, in the, um, uh, which goes out. At two, about two thirty a.m. Uh, UK time, you know, Saturday night, Sunday morning, um, and uh, yeah, and it's usually, well, it, it, it it's always just one of us, uh, either myself, Simon, or Austin, and uh, and we try and wrap up the the main stories each week in about a fifteen to thirty minute uh, slot there. So. Um, so yeah, if you if, uh, if if you ever want to hear us live on the radio, you can these days. Um, Austin, how about yourself? Yeah, I can be found on Twitter at Austin underscore James nine zero six. I was in New Jersey a couple of weeks ago for Brazil and the United States. I had planned to go to Brazil, El Salvador. Uh, but unfortunately wasn't able to end up making it there due to some weather situations here. Uh, But be sure to follow me on Twitter. There's a whole host of Scouting Spotlight podcasts that should be coming out soon. Matias Vargas, uh, an interesting player at Vela Sarsfield, is one we've profiled. And as well, we just recorded one on both Lucas Paqueta and Everton at Gremio. Um, So once those get edited and out, those will certainly be two that uh, you want to check out as well. And last but not least, Tom. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at TomRobo89. And yeah, just want to echo those sentiments of Austin. Uh, lots of scouting spotlight pods that can come out. And be sure to check out our one on Ezequiel Palacios as well. You've got his first two Argentina caps recently. Um, and yeah, I'm, I've got a few things out there. Um, a few podcasty bits coming out this week and, and a tactical piece on uh, 
a Paraguayan fullback if you if you fancy something a bit different. Uh, Santiago Aza Mendio has been a, a a good performer in this year's Libertadores. So yeah, just check on my Twitter and there'll be plenty of stuff going up there. Actually, it's not last but not least because it's me and uh, and I'm very much least. So um, you can find me at AdamBranson84 on, on, on Twitter. Uh, by the time this pod is out, my um, like match report or review from the Colo Colo Palmeiras time that we've discussed in this pod will we'll be up on the website with, along with a few pictures as well that I took in in the game and at the press conference so so yeah um, be sure to check that out on the World Football Index all what's left for me to say is a, is a huge thank you to Tom Simon Austin for joining me on this uh, South American football show we'll be back either next week or the week after again if you've enjoyed this show then please rate and review us on iTunes and it's goodbye from me goodbye from the guys bye